Welcome once again to The Movies of 1999. This is a podcast where we watch one movie from 1999 every week that's selected via Bingo Machine. My name is Jason Hutchins. And I'm Craig Colin. And in this podcast, we review movies that were released in the year 1999. Last week, we had a movie night where The Bingo Machine selected number 23, which was a simple plan. And we also paired that with Toy Story 2 for reasons that we might discover in the podcast today. But before we start talking about those movies, Craig, what did you think about the movie night last week? Um, I really enjoyed the first movie night, Jason. Um, I think it's a really great idea. It it was really good. We had about six people visit and I think there was a little bit of controversy when we selected the number from the bingo machine because the way this bingo machine works is it's got a little hand crank on the side and if you crank the bingo machine in one direction it mixes all the balls and if you crank it in the other direction a ball just immediately pops out and we practiced this we practiced this a couple of times with Dana who was the ball selector of the week and of course when push came to shove and she was in the spotlight she cranked it in the wrong direction and number 23 just popped out straight away but I, I think it was already well mixed enough and we can call that as random as it can be so yeah. when it, when I looked well, up the number in the spreadsheet was a simple plan and I don't think anyone really remembered that movie so when we announced it there was everyone yeah, sort of looked um, at each other in a puzzled way a simple plan is not a movie that I recall it's probably one that I did hear of at the time I think because of the aeroplane So, of course, at the end of this podcast, we will be cutting live to the second movie night to find out which movies we'll be talking about this time next week. But for now, we can dive into talking about A Simple Plan. So why don't I set the scene? A Simple Plan is a thriller drama film directed by Sam Raimi, released in 1998, which is kind of interesting because we're doing movies of 1999. The reason why it's selected is that it didn't get a wide cinematic release until early 1999. It screened at some movie festivals in late 1998. So that's why on Internet Movie Database it's listed as a 1998 movie. Yeah, I think it was Toronto, uh, the Toronto Film Festival. The plot revolves around three men who discover a downed airplane in a snowy remote forest. Inside the plane they find a large sum of money and there's Hank, his older brother Jacob and Jacob's friend Lou. They then face a moral dilemma about whether to keep the money or let the police know or whatever. They try to keep the find hidden, but their plan starts to unravel. And the situation is complicated by Hank's moral compass and his fear of getting caught, which contrasts with Jacob and Lou's more reckless attitudes. The tension among the group escalates as they become increasingly paranoid and mistrustful of each other. Their relationships are strained to breaking point by the stress of keeping such a big secret hidden. The story delves into themes of greed, morality and the erosion of human values in the face of temptation. As the plot unfolds, the characters are faced with increasingly difficult choices leading to a series of tragic events. The film explores how a seemingly simple plan can spiral out of control, leading to devastating consequences for all involved. And I must thank ChatGPT for for writing that synopsis for me. So that gives a bit of background to the movie. Craig, what did you think of A Simple Plan? 
Um, I actually enjoyed the movie quite a bit. I found it a very interesting movie to watch. Apparently, this movie went through quite a tortured process to get released. The uh, writer of the novel and screenplay is a guy called Scott B. Smith, who originally intended it to be a screenplay, but then released it as a novel first. He worked with a couple of the different directors to rewrite the movie, because originally the movie was like 354 pages long, which apparently is way too long. So um, finally it ended up with Sam Raimi, Bill Paxton and Bridget Fonda. Billy Bob Thornton, interestingly, was involved with the movie from quite a early stage. How good is it that Princess Mononoke, Billy Bob Thornton, was the voice actor for The Monk, and then this week we have him in one of the roles. So there's an unexpected thread tying last week to this week. But what's also interesting is A Simple Plan takes place over Christmas and New Year's. So during the movie, they're actually watching on TV uh, New Year's Eve in New York City where they have their ball the dropping ball. or something like that. There's balls dropping with the bingo machine. We've got the ball dropping in New York City. It's We've just started. 2024, they're celebrating the new year in the movie. It's amazing how you get these threads tying things together. But yeah, serendipity, go. I think. Serendipity. So this movie is actually, uh, obviously, Bill Paxton has uh, passed away now. And this is considered by a lot of people to be Bill Paxton's best performance in a movie. I personally really liked him in Twister, but this was considered to be one of his best performances. And I think as an actor, he certainly is the key actor in the movie. Mm. Though the character of Bridget Fonda, uh, Sarah, is a bit of a psycho, to be honest. She's a bit, she goes from being uh, like this meek, mild-mannered, pregnant housewife to being, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to do that quite violent thoughts, mm, if I she, can put it that way. She does, and, <laughs> and I think that that's where this simple plan becomes more and more complicated. You know, the whole idea of the movie is that it begins with a very simple plan of let's hide the money, and then if no one ends up looking for it, and if the police don't discover the aircraft and wonder where the money has gone, then we'll just split it three ways, and that's a nice simple plan. It becomes more and more complicated, and she really is the complicating factor once she has been drawn into this plot and things go off the rails, she comes up with these increasingly bizarre plans of how, thing, how to get things back on track. And, and in a way, it snowballs. And, and this movie is set in the snow. They actually throw snowballs at each other at one point. But the plot itself, this simple plan just snowballs and gets more and more out of control. So that in the end, the plan is something like, how about you shoot me in the head and we'll blame it on the FBI guy, you know? Yeah. It's part of the charm of the movie, and it is very yeah. much a, a black comedy, you know? And, and I thought Billy Bob was yeah. great as a comedic actor. A lot of the laughs came from his character. That's interesting. I didn't really see it as a comedy. I, I really felt it was quite dramatic. But I can see, I can see there's that side of it as well. Certainly, there's a little sequence at the beginning of the movie, which I wanted to mention, where John Paxton, Bill's dad, um, without Bill's knowledge, he got the part of a farmer who comes into Bill's office mm. and he's arguing with Bill about the fact that he got charged five times in the month. So John Paxton um, did that without Bill's knowledge. So Bill didn't know about it until the time came to shoot that scene. Yeah, His dad just sort of turned up. It's quite a funny one like, having your dad show up as one of the the actors. Yeah, that he had to argue with his dad. And I think it gives that scene a little bit more emotion 
Mm. Like he he can see the frustration, <laughs> and it's like you know, Dad, what are you doing here? Yeah, his, his dad was being like a, a difficult customer. Like, how can there be five weeks in a month? Not, exactly. Not five weeks, yeah. five Mondays. You know, it, it, it's yeah, quite it's yeah, quite good. Exactly. He's sort of wondering why he's being charged twice or something. Yeah, um, that's right. Um, a couple of other neat little things that happened in the movie. I didn't actually see this, but for some weird reason, a member of ZZ Top. Frank Beard was flown in for a cameo appearance during the funeral scene. He's only very barely visible in the film, apparently. He's apparently um, behind the funeral director uh, wearing a white carnation. Not quite sure sure why they went to all the trouble of flying him out for that little tiny appearance. I I have no idea. Like, back in the day, I was a big fan of of ZZ Top. Frank Beard, Mm, of course, is the drummer um, who is the member of the band who didn't have a beard, whereas Billy Gibbons and Dusty Hill sport the big, long the big beards, beards, and then Frank Beard doesn't have the beard. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure why Frank Beard was, um, why they felt the need to put him in the movie. I just remember ZZ Top appearing in Back to the Future 3, and that's the only time. I think they wrote the soundtrack for that movie and also briefly appeared as like a bit of a cowboy band. It's certainly true that this movie... The fact that this movie got made at all was a bit of a miracle because it went through something like three different companies. Everyone from Nicolas Cage to name a big name uh, Hollywood actress or actor and they seem to have been put up for this part of Hank and Sarah at some point, but it ended up with Bill Paxton and Bridget Fonda. I think Bridget Fonda was a brilliant choice for this movie because... She just has that evil side to it that makes it just that little bit scary. You know? she, she was great in Jackie Brown as well, which was just a couple mm. of years before this, I think, uh, Tarantino yeah. movie. For the uh, classicists out there, this uh, uh, movie is apparently a bit of a reworking of Chaucer's Pardoner's Tale. And there's also a fable known as The Three Thieves and a Purse of Gold. In it, uh, the men steal a pouch of money and decide to go divide the gold amongst themselves. One of them goes to buy food and puts poison in it. Meanwhile, the other two decide to kill him. After they kill him, the two other thieves sit down and they eat the poison food and they all end up dead. So, again, you've got that literary inspiration for these movies, you know, like if you go back far enough, every every story has already been told. Mm. Well, they do say there's only seven plot outlines or something like that. When we saw this movie at the movie night, it made me think of another movie that you and I saw uh, back in the day when we were housemates. And we would walk down midweek to this nice little art deco art house cinema that was near our flat that we were living in at the time. Um, Was it Palace? Uh, It was the Signet Theatre. Oh, Signet Theatre, you're right, yes. And and it was a great old movie theatre and it was independently run and and you'd go in there and buy the ticket from this old man that was dressed up in a movie theatre outfit and he would be at the little ticket booth and then you'd walk over to the concession stand to get some popcorn and he would slowly amble out of the ticket booth and then go and serve you at the concession stand. I remember that now. We went into this movie called A Shallow Grave. That was a good movie, actually, from what I remember. It was a great movie. Uh, Again, it was a black comedy. So it's a Danny Boyle movie, and Danny Boyle went on yeah, to do Train Spotting, Slumdog Millionaire, yeah, 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 28 yeah. Days Later, a lot of great movies. The plot of Shallow Grave is exactly the same. Three friends discover a bundle of money, and then chaos ensues as their greed causes them to commit acts of violence and things like that. And if you go into the internet movie database, it links to the exact same cautionary tale from Canterbury Tales as well. 
So I think that this is a plot outline that a lot of movies draw inspiration from, and it does lead to a very interesting story, and it's really a story of morality. And I think in A Simple Plan, Billy Bob Thornton's character is the simple-minded brother, with Bill Paxton's character of Hank being like the well-educated brother, and you'd think that he would be the one that has the morality. But I, I got a lot of the a lot of the morality sort of came out of things I thought that Jacob said. He was a very honest, very open character. He wanted to keep the money, but he wanted to keep the money because they convinced themselves that it must be drug money and that nobody would yeah. miss it. Uh, yeah, I think I think all of that is true. I think Jacob does come across as the, the most decent character in the movie. Bill Paxton becomes pretty unhinged by the end, I think, and Jacob is really the one who is the moral compass everyone sarah is the malign influence and hank really goes a bit crazy and then he finally realizes towards the end of the movie oh god i've really got to stop listening to sarah because you know she's like everything that she's told me to do has just made things worse Mm -hmm. she's in the background not one of the three but she's just like guiding things to a, a really a bad end one of the other things I think I commented about this on the movie night at several times is the fact that there was uh, always crows around. A group of crows is called a murder of crows. Um, when you have crows around, something bad's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Certainly, a lot of bad things happened around that aeroplane where the crows were. I did find it was a bit heavy-handed. I mean, the crows basically attacking his face as he was approaching the dead pilot of the aeroplane and things like that. They were a fairly obvious omen of things to come, I suppose. This morality thing, so Hank's character, he was like the good son who went off to college. Mm. And really, to me, he was the most pathetic of the characters. He ended up working in a hardware store, whereas his his brother, Jacob, who had sort of stayed behind and helped his father, who it's revealed their father committed suicide, I think, because he didn't have any money. So, yeah. so Jacob, for me, was the... the the character with you know with more morals than his uh, brother. I think that definitely comes through. And uh, and he wasn't comfortable yeah. but betraying their friend uh, Lou. I, as I said, I think the character of Hank becomes more and more uh, unhinged as the movie goes on, and less and less moral, and is definitely almost the villain in this movie. Mm. I think probably that's why also Billy Bob Thornton was the one that was nominated for an Oscar. It's his performance, particularly in that latter part of the movie, that really makes the movie work. I think Bill, Bill, Billy Bob Thornton is actually the one who, he kind of carries the movie, especially in the last two-thirds, because his character becomes the more important in a lot of ways, because mm. he's the voice constantly going, eh, should we really be doing this? I don't really want to do this anymore. I really think we should stop doing this. Yeah. And Bill Paxton's like, no, it's too late. We have to keep going. You're the dumb one of the family. Listen to me. I'm smarter than you. That just gets him into more and more trouble. Yeah, and then, and then so. it's the Billy Bob character who comes up with the final plan to keep the money, even though, of course, they, in the end, they can't keep the money because the real FBI agents reveal to them that a whole bunch of people have sat down and written down the serial numbers of a lot of the $100 bills that are in the stash, yeah. which means they have to burn it all. So at the end of the film, they're back at square one. The only difference is there's a lot of dead people. It's it. It's a sad movie in that sense. You know, I, I really, really enjoyed this film. I, th- I think I enjoyed it more than I did back in the day because back in the day, 
uh, Billy Bob had a bit of a reputation. I didn't really like the guy. And I think that sort of drew me away from his performance. But re-watching it last week, I, I really appreciated his performance. I like this style of movie as well, these black comedies. I mean, this whole scene where they confront Lou and get him drunk and get him to confess to a murder that he hasn't committed. And he cottons onto that and it ends up being a shootout where he and his wife are both killed. Mm. That ends up being a very Tarantino-esque comedic scene. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I actually thought that as I was watching it. You can see the hand of Tarantino in that section there. I I think so, and Uh, I commented on that on the movie night. I think movies like this only got made because Tarantino had proven that there's an audience for this kind of black comedy. Like movie studios were more likely to take a bet on a movie with this kind of plot. And I, I think it worked really well. And I really like the performances of Brett Briscoe, who played Lou, and his wife, Becky Ann Baker. I think they're both really good character actors. And even, even though you had this main cast of Bill Cat. Paxton and Bridget Fonda and Billy Bob Thornton. These two character actors, together with Gary Cole, who played the fake FBI agent, who was actually one of the people who had stolen this money and had come looking for it in the guise of an FBI agent. You know, the fact that he plays Bill Lumberg in another movie that we'll be watching this year sort of drew away from that because he was pretty recognisable. But I think those three cast members gave really good performances as well. So... Yeah, when Gary Cole appeared, he kind of did take me out of the movie a little bit. Because you recognised him? Because I recognised him and he's not normally the kind of bloke you would expect to appear in a movie in a character role like that. Mm. So it kind of took me out of it because I had a hard time seeing him as like the genuine villain that he was because it's like, that's Gary Cole. Mm. I know Gary Cole. I really liked the performance actually of poor old Carl, the sheriff, Chelsea Ross. Carl probably gets a pretty rough time in this movie. Um, Spends a lot of the movie seeming a little bit clueless. But I actually liked his performance. I thought it was clear enough what kind of person he was, but it was kind of understated. He Mm. didn't go too, he didn't lean too hard into the dumb cop routine, though there is a mention of donuts in there at some point. He he was quite funny when he offered to take Hank for a ride in the police car and put the lights on and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there was a bit of humor there. Yeah, so there were some, there were some humor. No, no, I really appreciated um, the the humorous I, aspects of it. Yeah, I really liked this movie as well. As as I said at the start, it's not a movie that I probably would have sat down and watched on my own. But I'm glad I did watch it. I think that's probably one of the things about this year is there's going to be movies where we're going to go. Um, glad I had the opportunity to watch that. And be- so. before we wrap it up, um, we didn't really talk about Sam Raimi, the director, but he was known for the Evil Dead series of movies. Right. And then, of course, he went on to direct the Spider-Man trilogy. And it's interesting that a lot of the actors in this film appear in the Spider-Man movies, I think, including Gary Cole and even Bill Paxton's dad. He's been in A Simple Plan, but also Spider-Man and Spider-Man 3. So clearly Sam Raimi likes the cast that he put together for A Simple Plan and and has gone on to use them in other roles. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Sam Raimi was very well known for a particular movie before he did A Simple Plan, and that's why he got... uh, He did that Western one, The Quick and the Dead, um, with Sharon Stone, and I think Leonardo DiCaprio's in that, a very young Leonardo DiCaprio, and also Russell Crowe is is in in his first Hollywood role, I think, in The Quick and the Dead. I think it was The Quick and the Dead, actually. That was the 
one where people went, oh, well, he's the guy we'll get for this movie. Uh, he was like the third or fourth choice for this movie. Um, the little, little details like that, when you do the research on these movies, it's quite interesting. Yeah, what they had to go through to put it together. And I think when they had that close-up of the crew pecking at the eyeballs of the dead pilot in the plane, I thought, okay, well, that's probably a, a Sam Raimi touch, you know, just channeling some of his evil dead experience into that horrific image. Yeah, yeah. You can see there's a little bit of an influence in the Evil Dead series in this movie, now that, now that you mention it. So that was A Simple Plan, which is the movie that we watched for our very first movie night. But... Like I said in the introduction, we're pairing every movie night movie with a second movie from 1999, which is additional homework if people want to go and watch a second movie during the week on their own time. And this week, that movie was Toy Story 2. So without further ado, let me read the little synopsis for Toy Story 2. So this is an animated film produced by Pixar Animation Studios that involves Woody, Buzz Lightyear and their toy friends. And the plot gets set in motion when Woody is stolen by a toy collector named Al, who plans to sell him to a toy museum in Japan. Woody discovers that he is the star of a TV show from the 1950s called Woody's Roundup, and he meets other characters from that show. There's Jesse the Cowgirl, Bullseye the Horse, and Stinky Pete the Prospector. Initially, Woody is tempted by the idea of being immortalised in a museum in Japan, but he soon realises that life is more important if he is with Andy, his owner. So meanwhile, Buzz Lightyear leads a rescue mission with some of the other toys to save Woody. And their adventure is filled with humour, action and a few Star Wars references. The toys have to navigate the outside world, facing obstacles and challenges. And this film explores themes of friendship, loyalty and the value of being part of a loving family. Toy Story 2 was notable for its emotional depth, humour and the development of beloved characters from the first movie. The climax sees the toys working together to return to Andy's home. Craig, and I think I know where we're going to go with this. What did you think of Toy Story 2? I absolutely love this movie. I actually took the time this week to watch the entire Toy Story series. I actually think that of the four Toy Story movies, this is probably my favourite. And if you are going to watch this movie, please, whatever you do, Make sure you watch the short outtakes at the mm. end because they are absolutely hilarious. They are absolutely fantastic. Um, but this movie really takes it to the next level. It was They really are worth seeing. The movie itself is probably one of John Lasseter's better movies. And I know John Lasseter is now a little bit on the nose. He's another one of these people who's got a little bit of a negative re reputation. But these movies are, are really fantastic. And I think Tom Hanks, Tim Allen... Joan Cusack, Kelsey Grammer from the Frasier series, Don Rickles. All of the voice cast really makes this movie what it is. I think the voice cast for these Toy Story movies, they were brilliantly picked. Interestingly, you know the character of Al? Mm. The guy who voices that actually looks like his character. He is. He, he's Newman from Seinfeld, isn't he? Yeah, Kramer's he looks friend. very, very much like his uh, character. Uh, so this movie, it's one of these movies you could talk about for a long time, I think, <laughs> because there are so many little bits and pieces, Easter eggs, as you might call them, all the way through the movie. There's lots of little callbacks to other movies in the Pixar series, which I think has also become a bit of a tradition in Pixar movies. So there's a lot of promotion of A Bug's Life. Those characters are in the movie and in the uh, outtakes at the end. I found this mo movie to be a very funny movie. I really, really enjoyed this movie. What did you think, Chase? I'm going to have to disappoint you by saying that 
25 years ago, I would have agreed with everything that you said. I loved Toy Story 2 at the time, and in fact, I said it would have been on my A-list for movies this year had it not been a sequel, because one of my rules with the movie night movies is no sequels, no franchise films, but I hadn't watched it in a very long time, and it has not aged as well as I was hoping it had. I think part of that is the animation. It just does not look as good as as computer animated movies these days. And that's kind of obvious. Technology has changed so much. But we watched this the week after watching Princess Mononoke. And Princess Mononoke is timeless. It looks as good today as any other hand-drawn or two-dimensional animated movie. To me, Toy Story just looked really flat. A lot of the textures didn't look very well. I I think it's something that maybe David and Drew, friends of the podcast, who are more experienced in in that area, would probably have some opinions on. These Pixar movies were never going to age well from a technical point of view. I think where I do disagree with you, though, is I still think the story is fun. I think for me, when I watched it originally, the animation was one of the big draw cards, and and that's something that really impressed me because Toy Story was the first full-length computer animated feature film. But on the rewatch, because the animation and the look of the movie was no longer impressive, it meant that the story had to carry more of the weight for me. And then the story was very much more a a family film or, or a kid's film. For me, there were really only three moments in the movie that stood out. And one of those moments is when Jesse sings the song about being loved. Uh, That was actually something that they thought long and hard about including in the movie. At the time, people were saying it's not really a Pixar thing. There was sort of that reaction against the Disney movies and everyone breaking into song every five seconds whenever they had something to say. But in the end, they actually kept it. And as you say, it is one of the key parts of the movie. And I'm interested to hear you say that that, that's a bit that you remember. I'm so glad that they kept that song because it really made the movie appeal, I think, more to an adult audience who would identify with what's expressed in that song of falling out of love or losing the person that that you're in love with or whatever that might be. So that, that was one moment. Another one was Woody's Roundup. When they go and watch the old 1950s black and white TV show and you see Woody and Jesse and the prospector and they're all string puppets. All of that was done with computer animation, but they sort of made it look like a puppetry. I thought that was fantastic and that still held up today. And that's actually an interesting parallel with this in the previous movie, because when we finished watching A Simple Plan on the movie night last week and the credits came up the screen, one of the first credits was for puppeteers. And I thought, there weren't any puppets in A Simple Plan. Like, why were there puppeteers? But I think what it was is the crews in the um, aircraft, when they were attacking Bill Paxton, they were being puppeteered. They were being controlled by... Actually, I was going to mention that earlier when we were talking about a simple plan. The the crows in the aeroplane were puppets. Maybe puppets are the link between these two movies. Maybe that's why I link them together. I couldn't say for sure, but it's interesting. And there's a couple of other movies that we'll watch this year that feature puppetry. Okay. That's, that's kind of a bit of a teaser. And the third moment that I really liked was the whole sequence where they drive the pizza car. All the toys have to figure out how to drive this car. And I thought that was was brilliant as well. You know, you, you called out the voice acting, but again, compared to the 
Princess Mononoke dub, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen in particular sort of do this really exaggerated style of voice acting, which I found I didn't appreciate as much uh, as I thought I would. I think Joan Cusack did a great, great job as Jessie. She was fantastic. But Tom Hanks in particular, he, it sounded a bit put on to me. It was more of a cartoon voice than, than playing a character. I think for me, Woody is kind of a cartoon character anyway. He, like he that's is. That's the kind of character he is. So I think that exaggeration from Tom Hanks, certainly in Tom Hanks's case, I think he's a talented enough actor that that would have been something he did deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, having watched the other two Toy Story movies as well, number three and number four, Number four was one I had never actually seen before, and they are much more dark and serious movies than the first two. They do get darker, uh, don't they? Yeah. They de- like, that the fourth movie in particular is quite got a bit of a dark side to it and a much more adult side to it. I don't know that it's fair to, to compare Miyazaki's greatest movie to Toy Story <laughs> 2 in some way. I think they're very different movies. I think watching um, them back to back sort of gave me a yeah. different context yeah. when watching Toy Story 2. And so the animation and the voice acting probably diminished my enjoyment of Toy Story 2 more than it would have yeah. if I hadn't watched um, Princess Mononoke the week before. I think the last bit that graded with me was the musical number at the end of the movie, which I think if they were going to cut a mu- musical number, they should have cut that. When Wheezy the Penguin sings You've Got a Friend in Me with the three Barbie backing singers, I think that was really not a Pixar moment. That was more of a DreamWorks moment. I'm, I'm sure that the people who make Shrek saw the ending of Toy Story 2 and said, we've got to do a musical number like that. We'd already heard You've Got a Friend in Me earlier in the movie when Woody sings it in Woody's Roundup. And I didn't need to hear that song again. And I thought that musical numbers detracted from the story of the movie as a whole. It was a a little bit gratuitous. So, Look, I think the child in me still sees this movie. And I I take your point about it probably not ageing as well. I guess for me, there's a bit of nostalgia in this movie. And I guess part of that is just me, probably my immaturity of anything else. Now, another link between Toy Story 2 and A Simple Plan is that during production, both movies lost footage. Yes, they did. So in A Simple Plan, part of the movie was lost by an airline. So what would happen is the daily rushes from the film would get sent back to the studio for reviewing from on location, and they were flown back. One of those daily sets of scenes was actually lost. There was entire day's footage that was lost. And how about Toy Story Uh, 2? What happened there? So Toy Story 2 was actually deleted completely by what is called an RM star. Basically translates to remove everything. There's a video actually from some of the people from the movie talking about as this happened. And they actually literally watched the movie disappear in front of their eyes as the computer went through and deleted it all. They, were, there was no, they basically there, rang. There was no control C. I mean, they didn't stop it halfway No, through. well, I, I'm not sure who actually ran RM Star, but um, basically what happened was they actually rang the technical department and said, pull the plug on the computer now. And the technical department said, oh, no, you can't do that. It's like, do it now, do it now. And they did. They pulled the plug. So they managed to save some of the movie. Interestingly, and I was quite surprised to see this because I would have thought the movie was quite massive. Gail and Susan had a backup comp- uh, copy of the film at her house because she just had a baby. She was on maternity leave. So there you go. And so they literally... People working from home back in the 90s, isn't it? Fantastic. That- yeah. So they went, they literally drove to her house, picked up her computer and drove back very gingerly to the studio 
there's definitely a step up in quality, and you can see that in all four movies. Especially, I think, with the humans. I mean, obviously, one reason for starting with Toy Story is it was a lot easier to model and animate toys than it was to model and animate human beings. And the human beings in Toy Story are kind of background characters, whereas in Toy... And they're not convincing. And they're not convincing at all, whereas in Toy Story 2, the human being, Al, he's one of the main characters of the movie. What's interesting to me is they didn't have backups. So they didn't follow the old 3-2-1 rule for backup, which is you have three copies of everything, two on-site and one off-site. Backups are great, but if you never restore your backups and check that they're actually there, it's very often the case. You go to restore your backup and discover that your backup broken, and that's exactly what happened in this case. So interesting that they didn't have a good backup. You think for a movie with millions of dollars of budgets, they would have done better. So our opinions differ on Toy Story 2. Back in the day, I would have had the same reaction as you, Craig, but on the rewatch, it just didn't hold up for me. So that was Toy Story 2. So we've talked about A Simple Plan and A Toy Story 2, which are the two movies we selected last week. To find out which movies we're going to be watching this week, let's cut live to the dropping of the bingo ball and we'll go there now. So over to you, future Jason. Okay, thank you, Jason. Here we are at the second movie night. We've got Matthew, Craig and David and Dana is spinning the bingo ball. And now she's reverse direction and there's a ball and it's popped out. And what number is it? Number 21. 21. Yay, Last week we were 23. So number 21 is the Iron Giant. Two nights ago, SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. <laughs> this is something much more dangerous. So, I guess you're not gonna hurt me, huh? This is unbelievable. This is the greatest discovery since television or something. Hey, big metal guy, I got food here for you. Mm. I'm a giant robot. I am now the luckiest kid in America. Banzai! Banzai! All systems go! Blast off! Hey there, Scout. Kent Mansley. I work for the government. Now, why would you tell your mom about a giant robot? Mom! Ah! No privacy! Sorry. What are you talking about? Where's the giant? For some reason, the army is in our front yard, Mr. Mansley. We must stop it at all costs. Go to Code Red! Repeat, Code Red! We've got to help him! Hogarth, no! We gotta hide! Hey, stop! There's a kid in his hand! You can't protect him, Hogarth. Run! Warner Brothers Family Entertainment presents... The story of a young boy. Look out for the boss! And a giant from another world. You can fly? Who became a hero on this one. You can fly! The Iron Giant. The Iron Giant. And we have paired that with Disney's Tarzan. 
Coming only to theaters June 18th. Experience an all-new motion picture event. Tarzan. Walt Disney Pictures proudly presents Tarzan. Coming June 18th. So it's two animated movies for today. So back to you, Jason, in the past. Okay, so they are the movies we'll be watching next week. And that's time for us to wrap it up. So thanks for joining me today, Craig. And I look forward to watching those with you uh, during the week. And we'll see you in next week's episode. So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me as well. Really looking forward to this week's movie night where we get to find out what the next two movies are that we're going to be watching. Looking forward to watching those with you. And as always, let's give the last word to Margaret and David. See you next week. See you later. We'll start in snowbound Minnesota and the story of money which falls from the sky in A Simple Plan. What did you think, Margaret? It's very restrained for Amy, isn't it? Mind you, you know, I'm a lover of his exes. But he's contained himself beautifully with this movie. It looks fabulous. And I had a problem with her character changing from this sort of moral housewife into major schemer in 30 seconds well, flat. The fact that she does make that switch um, is because she's got no choice. I mean, he's made the decision to keep the money. She's got no choice other than to go along with it. And then she makes suggestions, most of which prove extremely non-productive. Well, counterproductive in the extreme. Look, I, I would give this three and a half stars. I think it's pretty solid. I think it's better than that. I'll give it four and a half.